Thank you for downloading the Aging Matters podcast. To find out more about how Transitions Life Care is providing care and comfort for life's changing needs, visit transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett, as always, representing Transitions Life Care and Transitions Guiding Lights. Nicole, we made it to December. We sure have, and you know it's 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 beginning to look a lot like Christmas, at least with the with the weather. I feel it on my skin. <laughs> the the weather certainly snapped into form here, but it was nice to. I, I feel like immediately, maybe like midway through Thanksgiving meal, everyone was like, "All right, it's time to get the decorations up." It's uh, well, no, she, I saw plenty of people decorating like right after Halloween, Halloween. <laughs> I, and I and I thought to myself. Oh, it made me feel so much pressure on the inside, but I, I still haven't done it. I'm going to be doing it probably tomorrow. But um, yeah, and then I started thinking about everybody who's really hyping up, you know, the, the holidays and wanting to get the decorations out just because everybody's feeling, you know, maybe not clinically depressed, but just depressed in general over the past year. And then I thought, well, there's always that natural letdown after the holidays. How horrible is everybody going to feel when they finally have to put away their decorations and we're still sitting in a pandemic? So um, you know, I think that's a great bridge to to some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. But um, it's been a tough year. It is. It has been. And uh, I think the governor should allow people to keep their decorations up as long as they want <laughs> while we're under quarantine. I think that should be the rule. I'm going to pass that on. Run up the flagpole. We'll see what happens. But I don't but, want to dust my decorations. I don't uh, like to leave it up so long that I have to dust the knickknacks. <laughs> well, I, I feel it. It should be up to the individual person to, to decide how long they want to keep them up. Well, on a more serious note, you know, we are dealing with quarantine and COVID-19, and that has impacted many things. And we're going to be having a discussion about uh, Alzheimer's and different types of dementia as, as if that isn't challenging enough in a caregiver role to deal with or as a patient to be dealing with that. But, you know, COVID-19 has presented some challenges when it comes to that. And to have a discussion about this, we had to bring in friend of the show, one of our favorite guests. She is Peggy Best, the program director for the Alzheimer's Association East North Carolina chapter. Peggy, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Jason and Nicole, for having me this morning. So, you know, the buzzword of the year, I'll probably end up in the Webster's Dictionary is COVID-19, I'm sure, as one of the most used words. But, you know, dealing with um, and working with family caregivers, care partners, the carers who are providing that assistance to loved ones with many different uh, chronic conditions, but especially with dementia, has has really brought a toll onto this group of people. Uh, I've heard so many different types of challenges that even when people are calling into transitions, guiding lights that they're facing. You know, initially when we went into the pandemic, some of the things were, well, why can't I leave my home? But now as the, as the days have turned into weeks and the weeks have turned into months, it's wearing not only on the individual with the cognitive impairment, but also that family caregiver. You're exactly right. Um, it's It's been difficult for the caregivers to receive um, access to services. Um, where they were experiencing caregiver stress before, it has now increased exponentially due to 
some people having to care for the loved one that has dementia in their home, but also the inability to access their loved one who may be living in long-term care um, and not being able to visit them where before they were able to visit them on a consistent basis. And even just, yeah, making, trying to make some of those decisions about, you know, is it safe to visit my loved one? Is it safe to bring in an outside caregiver? And I know that the Alzheimer's Association has this amazing 24-7 helpline that folks can call anytime, day or night, even at 2 a.m., uh, with any type of question that they may have or, or talk about a scenario or a situation that they're facing. What types of questions are coming into your helpline these days around COVID-19? Well, you know, after speaking with our helpline staff, who, as you said, are there 24-7, they have reported back to the chapters and let us know that one of the biggest um, issues that they're having to address with families and caregivers is social isolation, depression, being not knowing what to even do or how to even move forward because, it, for an example, they may have been taking their loved one to an adult day center in their area to give them some respite. However, now the adult day center is not open, and so they're struggling with knowing what to do. From what I've heard from our, our 24-7 helpline, most of what they've been able to do is just allow the caregivers or whoever is calling to just talk about what they're feeling because there's not an easy answer. Yeah, I know when the, when the pandemic, you first kind of created that giant cloud around the world, you know, even at Transitions Guiding Lights, we really found that there was a sharp decline in family caregivers seeking placement for fear that they wouldn't be able to see their loved ones for months. And, and facts are that really turned into a reality for a lot of people. And then even just the fear of bringing in outside paid caregivers to provide some of that respite for the fear that that paid caregiver could have also recently been to another home where, you know, they might have been exposed to COVID-19. I have found, though, in, you know, recent months, I think part of it due to the burnout, part of it also due to us learning about the disease and in, 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 in other ways of really how it's truly transmitted and the best protocol to really make sure that folks stay safe, that people are really looking at now, you know, taking that calculated risk to bring in that outside paid caregiver. Mm -hmm. And then some families, I mean, unfortunately, you, sometimes you just can't put off a placement. So it's, you know, doing virtual tours of assisted living and, and nursing homes and trying to make a decision about placing a loved one. And I know for a little while we were able to loosen some of the, some of the strings on some of the long-term care communities in our area, and they were able to give in-person tours. I fear, uh, based off of, you know, Jason and I were talking offline of what we kind of were seeing going on in our neighborhoods with so many people having tons of cars in front of their homes and having giant Thanksgiving feasts. I fear, you know, that our numbers are going to go up and we may have to um, sort of go back in time a little bit with some of our restrictions until we get past this next hurdle. I totally agree. And it's, uh, it's important for families and um, people that are living or working with persons with dementia to understand that those persons that are living with dementia have a high uh, prevalence of conditions that are potential risk factors for um, illness due to COVID-19. We don't know that dementia causes COVID-19, but they may have underlying issues that can increase their risk of, de of getting 
um, COVID-19, such as hypertension or coronary artery disease or diabetes. It just really places them at a higher risk. Um, yeah. So what are some things that you've heard families trying to do at home to get, to get through this time? I'm sure you've heard of so many just creative things that people have done um, outside of even just technology. But, you know, what are caregivers doing day in and day out just to get through? Well, as one of the things that we mentioned earlier is knowing that there is a support line like the 24-7 helpline that they can call anytime, night or day. And if it's just to talk about what they're going through, that's been helpful. Um, what some of the great ideas that have come across from some caregivers is, you know, ask a caregiver for a gift list. What does the person with dementia uh, might need and arrange for those items to be sent to the home? But also ask the caregiver for their gift list and what do they need that maybe you can arrange to have them sent. And because right now until the foreseeable future, we're talking about um, virtual uh, some of the ideas that have come across is families actually streamlining a movie with the person living in the long-term care facility online. Maybe there's a favorite movie. Um, some people have talked about we had our grandchildren do a dance to some music and recorded it and sent it to our loved one in the facility. Um, we do know that some facilities, when they've allowed visitors, may be able to come and they bring the loved one to the window. None of these are ever going to take the place of that connection of being able to touch and care for your loved one in a way that shows love and concern. But right now, I think it shines a light on caregiving that may have never had a light shine on the importance of caregivers and caregiving before. And, you know, Nicole, the thing about this is we talk about it from the position of dementia, which is very important. But we also know that there are caregivers in their home that are dealing with other issues, whether it may be caring for a child with autism or it may be caring for a loved one who's dealing with another type of issue at home. Definitely, for sure. It's, it's a really, really hard time, and, and I fear uh, just, just the mental health implications of all this when we do come out to the other side, mm-hmm. you know, just caregivers walking out of their homes. I, and I'm, I'm being a little uh, dramatic here, but for the first time after going through this experience and just the support they're going to need to process what they've been through, because I can imagine for many people this probably was quite traumatic. Yeah, extremely traumatic and something that Uh, We need as many resources and as much support as we can get. Peggy, thank you so much for coming on the show again. We really appreciate you taking the time here and to uh, share some of these challenges that a lot of people are experiencing. Thank you so much for you and Nicole having me on the radio today, and I hope that you all have a happy holiday. You as well. Peggy Best, Program Director for the Alzheimer's Association, Eastern North Carolina Chapter. We have to take a quick break, and we will be right back. After this, you're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Nicole Cleggett from Transitions Guiding Lights. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. Jason Kong here with 
Nicole Cleggett. And uh, we, again, thank Peggy Best for joining us for a discussion on dementia. And now, Nicole, we're going to turn our focus a bit. I always love when we do segments like these where we get some firsthand perspectives of what it's like to be like in a caregiving situation. And we're going to have a conversation with Kathy Roush. She's a caregiver for a partner with Young Onset Alzheimer's. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So this has, I'm sure, been an amazing journey for you and your partner over the years. And then with the added component of COVID-19, I'm sure that's added a whole other dimension to what you are going through. But let's start kind of from the beginning, Kathy, if that's okay. And talk to us a little bit about, you know, some of the things that made you realize in the beginning that your partner, you know, just something just wasn't right. Yeah, good question. Well, you know, you you get an official diagnosis, which was um, three and a half years ago. But the year before that, I really noticed a lot of forgetfulness or losing things or getting calls late at night from work where he hadn't done something, which was very unusual for him. And um, the other thing that really triggered it was we both traveled a lot for business and he started texting me asking me when I was getting home. And then 30 minutes later, he would text me the exact same question. 30 minutes later, the exact same question. But at that point, you know, he's just 52. Mm -hmm. I'm figuring, you know, he's just busy at work and not getting it. Or he misses me. But when we were, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And then after that episode, uh, he had called me one day and asked me about our plans for the evening. And literally 15 minutes later, he called me and asked me about the exact same plans. And I said, we just talked about that. And he said, no, I didn't. So that was like, there is something going on. But again, at 52, you would never think it was all. No, no. I mean, that would be the furthest thing from your mind, I'm sure. So, so, so you started noticing that pattern was, you know, did, I know you said you're both professionals, you know, were there, was there starting to be some sort of a pattern for him at work as well, where folks were starting to notice some changes? Yes. Um, he was VP of investor relations for a biotech company, unbelievably trying to discover rare, um, uh, drugs for rare diseases. And um, like I said, he started getting calls from his boss that he had misplaced something. He came home one day and said he had gotten kicked out of a meeting during a live presentation because he had the wrong presentation. And um, Rob was really, really smart, and that was not like him at all. So one day I said to him, this was like March of 2017, and I said, how is it you're so forgetful at home, but you seem to do okay at work? Yeah. And he said, well, I'm not sure I am doing okay at work. I don't know if I have a job. Oh and goodness. that set everything in motion right then because they had noticed it, but um, they, in my mind, didn't have a good HR department because nobody questioned him about why he was having problems 
you know, they just said, you know, maybe we don't need you here anymore. Oh, wow. So that was tough. That was really, really tough. So then the ball was set in motion. Then was the, was the next step going to see a primary care physician, a neurology, and, or just you know trying to figure out, you know, gosh, what's going on here? I'm sure other things like, oh, is it a brain tumor, stress, who knows, right? Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah, so I made a list of what was going on, and we went that March to his primary care physician. Unbeknownst to me, he had already been in there to tell his primary care that that he was forgetting things. But they asked him simple questions like, who's the president, what day of the week it is, and right. like, ah, you're just stressed. When I went in with my list of what he was doing, they were like, we're sending you to a neurologist right now. So we did go, um, it took like a month or so to get in, so we did go to the neurologist, and after being in there for about two and a half hours with testing, and I personally was shocked at what he couldn't do. I mean, they just blurted out, you have Alzheimer's, Mm. you know, and we were just sitting there in, in shock and just complete, complete shock. So that was kind of the way it all started. And, you know, I've been working in the medical profession my whole life, so I know what those words meant. Those three words, you have Alzheimer's. He didn't. So it was, it was really jarring. I, I was numb probably for two days mm. after that. So what were the next steps? I mean, you know, it's just wrapping your mind around that. I mean, he's not what you would picture, right? He's not 80 years old, you know, right. you know, just yeah. it's, it's, it's not the face of what you would think of when you think of Alzheimer's disease. So Hannah, how did you get from from there to, you know, just trying to work with the new normal? Yeah, um, well, the first thing they did was an MRI that day and then set us an appointment to go over to Duke's main campus to get a more thorough testing done, like a few hours of testing. And um, and I guess those tests are to test to see if it's frontotemporal or this or that. And um, it all just came back as, just Alzheimer's. Uh, We also did a PET scan, which showed a lot of diminished areas of the brain for executive functioning and behavior. And uh, what else did we do? Uh, We did the test to see if it was genetic because his aunt has um, severe Alzheimer's, although she was older, and both his mother and father suffered from dementia in older age. They've both passed now. But um, so all those things kind of set into motion, you know, how do we plan for the future, you know, which immediately we went and did legal things, you know, healthcare power of attorney while he could still think about it. And then I had to go back and talk to his office, you know, because he was as a consultant there now, but not really doing anything. And, um, Fortunately, we were able to get long-term disability from Mm -hmm. them, which was incredibly helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... So that really changed, you know, I'm sure the dynamic, maybe not immediately, but I'm sure as the years have gone on, I can imagine it's, it's changed sort of your relational dynamic as well. I mean, you go from, you know, partner to now... 
in some ways, not knowing 100% of where you're at in your caregiving journey, but caregiver to the person that you've committed yourself to. What has that been like for you? I think that's the hardest part of it. <clears throat> Coupled with the pandemic, yeah. you know, you're isolated. Uh, he, we went from a couple who went to Europe twice a year, traveled everywhere, to not being able to do anything. And as he digresses with the diagnosis, he becomes more and more childlike. And um, we don't, I have a daughter that lives here, but he has no family to help care for him. So it's just me. And, you know, it's been difficult during this past year being shut in, not being able to go anywhere. Uh, he attends um, an adult daycare during the day. So we have to be extra careful that we don't bring anything there. But, you know, we have sort of a friend relationship and it's a childlike for me, uh, like as a child, because he's at the point now where he really can't do anything without supervision. I have to stand by the shower, tell him to use the soap, use the shampoo, put deodorant on. I lay his clothes out for him every morning. You know, I make his breakfast. He can eat just fine, but he can't prepare any food. He really literally can't do anything without me showing him how to do it. So, so what are you what are you doing to help preserve yourself through all of this? I, I'm sure a lot of people listening are in caregiving journeys themselves and you know what what are some words of wisdom you have for those who are in the throes of this journey along with you? Yeah, good question. And I think that's the hardest thing to do in this journey is take care of yourself because you're so concerned about the other person. But what I ended up doing was um, getting a, uh, like a home care agency to come in every other weekend on Saturday mornings for me to be able to go do, um, I play pickleball, a lot of people don't know what that is, <laughs> but um, to go do that and, and be with my friends a little bit. And then occasionally, you know, maybe once a month, I have somebody come in so I can go out to dinner with some friends. Um, probably would have been a little bit different this year if we weren't quarantined, um, but it's hard. I'm actually getting ready to retire at the end of this month, which will give me more time during the day for myself to get things done and then be able to spend the time with him in the evening taking care of him. Um, you know, I try to walk every day, um, I have plans to learn how to meditate. <laughs> I don't know if I can ever learn to do that. <laughs> but but it's, it's really hard, Nicole. It is hard to try to put yourself first when there's someone who's so needy. And all of us caregivers, I think, suffer from guilt sometimes. Like, should I be going out to eat dinner, you know, when he's home by himself? But, of course, yes, you should because you need it. Yeah, preserving yourself is so important. And Kathy, we really appreciate you sharing your story. And, um, you know, your words of wisdom, I think, are so important for those who are dealing with a similar situation, because it's, 
it's really easy to forget about taking care of yourself when you're uh, doing as much for a loved one as you are. So I, we really appreciate you saying that. And we hope those who are in a similar situation can learn from that. And uh, we, again, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. We have to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. If you ever want to find more about Transitions Life Care, please go online to transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. And Nicole, we're going to shift focus here and we're going to be talking about brain health. This is a subject that I am excited to talk about and I'm very excited to welcome our two guests as well on the line. We have Rachel DeWeese. She is the operational coordinator for the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health at Duke. And uh, we also have Marianne Chanty Ketterell. She's the aging epidemiologist at Duke as well. Thank you both, Rachel and Marianne, for joining us. For having us. Thank you. Marianne, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your work with um, brain health. And really, you know, this is something, especially right now, when we're all a little bit more isolated because of the COVID 19 pandemic, um, I, I don't want some of these really important messages that we tried to get out to our aging adult community about the importance of brain health and the types of things that we can do to maintain our brains, especially when perhaps we're being a little bit more sedentary right now because we might be nervous about being exposed to COVID-19. So if you could talk to us a little bit about what we can do to maintain our brains. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we pretty much can maintain our health at any, in any circumstances. Of course, it's a little bit harder now, but we need to become creative. Um, you know, with the, like the Alzheimer's Association actually has a class on brain health that people can take virtually. If they want to learn more about this, they can go on their website and look it up. But I like to always focus on, on four areas. So four areas that we really need to target to maintain our brain health. And those are physical health and exercise, like you said. And, and I'll, I can talk a little bit more about this in a second. Um, social involvement. Again, as you mentioned, with this times in isolation, it just it's super important to keep socially engaged. Um, then we also, of course, need to take care of our diet and our nutrition, and we need to stay cognitively active. So those are the main four areas to maintain our brain health. And you know, with physical exercise, now we need to become a little more creative. But we can't go to the gyms and many things. But there are many studies that show that. Things as simple as yoga that we could do at home, and those have been proven to really maintain brain structures and really improve our cognitive health. And so that's something simple that we can do at home. 
Yeah, um, and I was going to say, you know, I've really noticed uh, that there have been a lot of gyms, you know, places that are closed right now because we can't be open and we're only in phase two, or even um, just other types of organizations have really, even the senior centers and things like that, really understand the importance of exercise. And they're, they're really providing a lot of really great online tools and resources for older adults to utilize to really help them maintain themselves even when they're sitting at home. Exactly, and there are many actually sitting exercises that you can do. I think what really is important, I think, for people to really understand is if you think about every time your heart pumps, 25% of the blood that is getting pumped is going to your brain. So the better that heart's pumping, the better blood flow you get to your brain and the better your cognitive function is going to be. Now, I always say, especially with senior citizens, the number one thing you want to make sure is to really, if you're going to try something new, make sure you check with your primary care provider first before you start anything. That's number one. And then number two is, I I always say exercise is kind of like a relationship. You really kind of have to marry it. And (laughs) you got to start by really, the number one thing is you got to enjoy it. Because if you're not going to enjoy it, you're not going to stick with it. You're not going to do it. So, you know, just try it little by little and, and check it out. It's just you'll find something that you fall in love with. And it could be from a sitting exercise to, you know, even walking every morning or afternoons. If you don't like the morning, try it at the afternoon. It's, it, it's just get going, get moving, well, right? Well, Marianne, you have me now picturing some sort of a dating app where we swipe past different types of exercise that don't tickle our fancy. No, 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 I'm not a runner. No, maybe, yeah, I could try this one. Well, let's just give that yeah, one a go. That's, a, that's not a bad idea, actually. That is a good idea. <laughs> Too funny. Um, what else? Yeah, and then we, you know, we always want to make sure that even if we're during COVID times, we stay socially connected. And there are so many studies out in the literature that show that social isolation is just so detrimental to our brain health. And it leads to disability in the long run. So especially if you're, um, you know, towards your new second 50s, right? After that, you want to really stay socially active. And you don't have to be going out there. You can do virtual active activities, you know, do Zoom calls, FaceTime with your family and friends. And, and, and there are many ways there. Are, like my book club went on a Zoom book club now. So there are many book clubs that you can still enjoy and, and gather with them. And, and really just the key here is just keep doing something that really stimulates your brain and, and, and be socially active. Because, you know, um, so my family, I'm originally from Costa Rica. And we actually just had a huge Zoom meeting two days ago. And it was so uplifting, really, to just see everybody and see how everybody's doing all in, you know, different places around the world. And it really does help your, you know, your your, your emotions. It, it uplifts you, so... Yeah, and really just, you know, and as we are living with the pandemic, and I, you know, and unfortunately, I don't think any of us in healthcare think that this is going away anytime 
too quickly. So this is the new normal for a while, really just trying to figure out creative ways to maintain connection with people. You know, even an example, I, you know, my, my husband and I, we had not seen our daughter who's, you know, young married, who's been living in Greenville, South Carolina for almost six months since the pandemic came and everyone was just trying to keep everybody safe. And, and then, you know, we just all sort of made the decision, okay, we are all going to self-quarantine for a couple of weeks and then we're gonna come together in sort of a remote location where we're just going to all cook for ourselves, but just spend that quality of time together. And I will tell you, that really helped all of our spirits lift up and just made things feel like we weren't living in the pandemic, even just for a little while. Exactly. And and it's not only good for us, but for especially the little ones also, mm-hmm. just to feel that there's still people out there. It's, I think, um, you know, I think children and, and seniors have been the hardest hit with all of this, but it's definitely, we just need to keep connected. It's super important. Um, and there's also many schools that need um, seniors to volunteer to read to little kids, uh, which will help both ways. It's mm-hmm. going to help the children and it's going to help them for sure. So and, what, so what uh, about nutrition? I know that's a huge issue. And, and now that everybody's sort of eating at home more than maybe they had been in the past, I think a lot of people are sort of going for some of those ready-made sodium-filled <laughs> meals in that <laughs> freezer aisle. And I will say I know this for a fact, because when I walk down that freezer aisle, oftentimes some of those meals that I might like to pick up are gone. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and they're, they're just so much easier, right? Especially when, oh, when so much stress is going on thinking about cooking and it's just you know but yes the next you know the next target area or, or area of focus that we're going to talk about is dining and nutrition and it's so key because what we you know we are what we eat they say right and oh my gosh I'm telling you I just had a, a terrible sweet cupcake the other day and I just felt <laughs> terrible afterwards so it's like full of sweets so you want to stick to a diet um, there are many diets out there there's really only two that have been scientifically shown across the years to be really good, and those are, you know, the typical Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet. So you want to, you want to have whatever it is that you're eating with lots of greens, nuts, whole grains. Um, you want to have lean proteins, but you also want to make sure that it's very low in sugar, and especially salt. Um, we just finished the Alzheimer's Association International Conference a couple of weeks ago, and that was huge. We want to make sure you, you lower your salt intake. It's good for blood pressure. It's good for the brain. I mean, it's just overall good. Um, and, of course, you stay away from fast foods. I mean, it's okay once in a blue moon, but <laughs> you really want to stay away from junk food. It's not good for you. That's a true story, though. Sure, t- it, it, it takes tastes good going down, but, boy, 30 minutes later, you feel like you are a zombie. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And last but not least, I want to say, you know, something we kind of all just sort of throw in the back burner is cognitive activity. You want to really, really maintain your cognitive activity. And how we do this is you have to push your buttons. That's what I tell everybody. If you are in your comfort zone, you are not trying hard enough. Um, you really want to acquire new skills. If you, people are like, well, I always do my crossword puzzle. Well, you know what? Um, try something different, something that it's, your brain's not going to go in like auto mode. Mm-hmm. Um, try a new language. You know, there are many apps now. We talked about, you know, the social activity um, app that we talked before. 
um, there are apps to learn a new language, and it's you're never too old to learn. That is something that's always out there, and I say, no, that is absolutely not true. Um, and so you definitely need to keep um, good mental health. There's a lot of people that are becoming depressed with the COVID, um, and you also want to address that. If you're feeling down, really make sure you go to your PCP and, and really address that. It's, it's okay. You know, we all go through it. It's okay to ask for help and get get the help when you need it and not wait longer. The longer you carry on with a depression or, or with mental um, distress, it's just going to, you know, it's not good for your health. That's great advice. That is the voice of Dr. Marianne Chanty Ketterl. She is the aging epidemiologist at Duke. And we also have Rachel DeWeese on the line. We will be talking to her about the North Carolina Brain Health Registry, a registry for a brain health at Duke right after this. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Nicole Cleggett and Jason Kong. FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett. We also have on the line Rachel DeWeese and Dr. Marianne Chanty Ketterl, and we're talking all about brain health, Nicole. And uh, we're also going to be discussing the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health at Duke. Yeah, you know, and I think the Brain Health Registry is something that um, people don't really know a lot about. And I think it sometimes might seem like it's something maybe that's a little spooky. So I want um, uh, Rachel to really had to talk to us about what this is and what this means and how this really can help people in our country and future generations. Great. Well, thanks for the opportunity. And I will say off the bat, it is not spooky. <laughs> but um, it, it's, uh, well, the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health is the first registry of its kind in the state. And it does a couple of things. It connects North Carolinians who are 18 years old and older to brain health research opportunities at five different institutions. Um, at the top, uh, it was mentioned that this is at Duke. This registry started at Duke, but with some state funding a few years back has expanded to include four other research institutions. So that's an important note and that this registry covers the entire state. Wow. Another thing that the registry does is um, educate participants and the public about ways to reduce risk and maximize their brain health in everyday life, as Dr. Jenny Ketterl was discussing earlier. Um, and we also highlight available supports and resources for people who are living with cognitive change and their caregivers. So I kind of like to think of it as a two-way street where people who are interested in finding out about research that they might be able to participate in are kind of giving into the system. And by being involved, they're getting to hear about what's coming out of brain science so that they can maximize their own cognition and help and create um Involvement in the greater good, I guess, is the way to put so, it. So if somebody wanted to participate in some of this research, what give, give us some examples of what that might look like. 
Sure. So research is a very broad term, and that can involve studies of people, data, samples of tissue from people, the whole gamut. So I think that might be what you're referring to as spooky. Um, but it's it's a very wide swath of, of ways that people can get involved. So um, you might find out about an ob- observational study that would help to better understand Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. There could be studies involving blood samples and imaging. There could be um, clinical trials that involve new compounds or devices or therapies. So it runs the gamut. But what's important to know about joining the registry is that by getting involved and signing up, what you are committing to is just learning about what research studies are available for which you might be eligible. So you're not you're not saying yes, I want to um, you know have spinal fluid taken and be involved in anything that comes down the pike. It's I'd like to learn what these different institutions and I'll tell you what what institutions they are. What are they working on right now to try and better understanding understand our um, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias with the goal of creating better therapies and eventually one day, hopefully, a cure? Well, I love that you're um, so- you're taking the time to explain that because I think you know sometimes we do live in such a research rich area, and I think people just make automatic assumptions of what even signing up for something may or may not mean. So I think mm-hmm. that's great that you know you could sort of catch a group of people that are curious, and then may perhaps over time they may choose to opt into something you know a little bit more detailed. Yeah, and the way it works on the ground is that if you sign up, and I will um, tell your listeners that the website is ncbrainhealth.org, where you can go on there yourself and just sign up, um, or you can call us and we can help you. But it's a very simple process with a very few number of questions asked um, beyond how to best get in touch with you, questions about your age, race, or ethnicity, Um, whether or not you've been diagnosed with a memory disorder and um, educational level. Um, All of those things are important. And so when you join the registry, um, you're basically entering a big pool of people who have raised their hand and said, yes, I'm interested in helping. That's it. And then researchers at these institutions come up with whatever studies they want to do. And when they narrow down the types of people that they're looking for for their study, then we can communicate with those people by sorting them for the whatever characteristics the researchers are looking for. And what that looks like is in your inbox, you get a flyer or a message that says, here's a study that you might be eligible for. And then you call in if you're interested and disregard if you're not. So it's really low pressure. That's really great. I know that, you know, everything surrounding cognitive impairment, the dementias, Alzheimer's disease, things of that nature. I was recently at a presentation where the researcher said a study has been done that people are more scared of being diagnosed with a form of dementia than they are of getting cancer. And so, you know, I think 
people just have a great sense of pause when it comes to the brain and, you know, well, what if I find out there's something wrong with me? Do I want to know? Don't I want to know? And I think people mm-hmm. people are terrified. And then there's all of sort of the urban myths and legends about how you contract a dimension. Some of them may have a grain of truth. Others don't. And so um, I, I definitely think this is super important for the community to know. Absolutely. Um, I, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, we are – for the registry, we're looking at for people of all ages, so anyone who's 18 years of age and older, mm-hmm. people who have been diagnosed with memory problems, people who have not been diagnosed with memory problems. The idea is to get as broad a range of people as possible because one of the things that is of interest to researchers is what does Alzheimer's disease that shows up in symptoms later on, what does that look like in younger people? So maybe we can find you know, indicators earlier in the lifespan um, because a majority of people find out about that they have Alzheimer's disease or some other form of dementia when the symptoms get bad enough. So do you have any examples of any amazing discoveries and research that have come out of the North Carolina Brain Health Registry? So this registry is relatively young. Um, I'm I'm going to defer to Dr. Chani Carroll uh, on this, if there's anything she would like to speak about sure. regarding um, gonna, the registry. Yeah. So I, I was going to say, well, there are um, many studies that have happened uh, that have used the a, what it used to be when it was just at Duke. Right now, we're just in the what, what we're calling the second phase when we are making the registry available for researchers. So right now... Um, we are just, uh, the, the two first studies have been approved to okay, use great. the registry. Mm-hmm. So we're just at that stage. Now, um, I personally have used it uh, in its previous form um, for pilot studies, and, and it's been super useful. It's, it's great for researchers. Um, I did a study on wristbands, uh, silicon wristbands, to measure um, pesticides and chemicals in the environment in people's homes, and we were comparing with farmers. And um, that should be out in publication soon. Um, but basically, we, you know, it was great because for every study, we also need controls. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, people without any kind of um, cognitive problems or, or not. In this case, it was not a cognitively related disorder. However, the registry served into finding people who were um, non-farmers so that we could see if they were also exposed to the chemicals. So that's how it can help. But I also wanted to add that the registry, is, it also serves as a way to get the latest information mm-hmm. on research. So that's really important, too. So you don't, you don't have to be um, willing to jump into a research study yet. So you can just join it to get the latest information from basically directly from the scientist. So I think that's, that's very powerful. So I know this is Thank sort you for mentioning that. So I know this is sort of an aside, um, but I do know that the Alzheimer's Association's um, global research conference was just a couple of weeks back. Were there any huge takeaways from that from either one of you? Oh, absolutely. One of the most important. I mean, and I always jump on this one because I'm really passionate about <laughs> one of the main barriers that we've had in research is that you know we've really done. I'm going to. I'm going to give this out there. Don't quote me on it, but I would say over 90% of our research has been done on, you know, Caucasians, and we have no diversity, and that's why 
Alzheimer's drugs often go out into a phase three, phase four, and they don't work as well as we expected them because, you know, we have a we're a melting pot, right? It's a very diverse um, country, and we need more more people of color to join the research in order to properly test our medications, our behavioral therapies, and everything, and then come out and actually work. Because we only, if we only focus in one group, then when we put it out there in the world and, and it just mixes with everybody, it's just, it's not going to translate. And so it is super important to increase diversity. And so this year at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference, that was, that was the number one thing of, of really putting a cry out there in the public that we need everyone involved in research um, in order to move this forward. So... That's amazing. That, that, yeah, that was basically, I, I, if there was anything to take out, people really need to understand that everyone needs to get involved. It's not just who's, you know, who's more accessible to it, but mm-hmm. everybody needs to join in order to find a cure. Yeah, yeah. definitely the whole idea and, of the social disparities of health is something that our whole country needs to tackle and really build that trust with more diverse populations. Because a lot of times there's a lack of trust with the medical community just because of some things that have gone on in the, in the distant past. So I definitely feel like we need to figure out, you know, a campaign on how to reach those groups and, and hopefully gain their trust so that these research studies will be a more impactful for them and their families. Absolutely true. And, you know, here with the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health, this is um, an issue as well that we're trying to increase um, diversity among the the people who are participating um, uh, gender-wise as well as racial and ethnic groups. Um, and I, I do want to mention, I don't think I have yet, the, the other institutions that are involved in the registry and point out that each one of these sites um, has a, an outreach coordinator that goes out into their communities to try and solicit um, participation in general, but with, a, with an eye for trying to reach underserved in research um, groups of people who, by the way, often are um, those groups that have higher incidences of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So even more a reason that we need to have more participation in in the studies. Um, Joining Duke in this um, five institution consortium is East Carolina University, North Carolina A&T, State University, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Wake Forest School of Medicine. Yeah, that's wonderful. Great to see all those universities and institutions joining up for this wonderful effort. If you want to find more information, go online to ncbrainhealth.org, ncbrainhealth.org. I want to thank Rachel DeWeese. She's the operational coordinator for the North Carolina Registry for Brain Health and also Dr. Marianne Chanty Ketterell, aging epidemiologist at Duke. That'll do it for us. We've got to get out of here, but we hope you will join us again next Saturday at 4 for Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a great day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.